The policeman isn't there to create disorder. The policeman is there to preserve disorder. Gentlemen, get the thing straight once and for all. We clear the streets along this route, deploy our men, and create an impassable barrier. A gauntlet, if you will. He won't have a chance. I challenge you to a duel. Well, tell you the truth, this guy's starting to get on my nerves. <laughs> you want to crown him? They crown him. But they are who we thought they were. And we let them on the It's hot. It's hot out there. Let's, we all walk out there. Very, very, very hot. Open fire! Friends and film buffs, welcome to the Gauntlet 100th episode celebration retrospective. Coming to you from Studio A at the Garage on California Avenue. I am your host, Alex Sherman, and I'm here with my good buddies, who will introduce themselves in a moment. But the Gauntlet is usually a weekly double feature podcast Yada, yada, yada. You all know the drill if you're listening to this. Tonight, we will be reminiscing and celebrating the past 99 episodes of some good movie talks. (laughs) Without further ado, let me introduce you to your favorites. Eric Marsh. Ryan Saunders. Andrew Stasiulis. That's all I got. Good night, folks. <laughs> yeah, Alex, thank you. Thank you. Uh, as the uh, official, unofficial fourth mic of the gauntlet, we appreciate uh, your service. and uh, Yeah, you always here in here. spirit. I oh, do what I can. Yes, always here in spirit and often, uh, often here, you know, as well. Very literally, yeah. Interrupting. Yes. <laughs> I try not to. Well, 99 a, episodes. Yeah. Oh, my God. What a long, strange trip it's been since uh, we were all, uh, you know, sitting around my backyard during the pandemic. And Andy was like, uh, God, all we do is sit around and talk about movies. We should, like, do, you know, do something uh, with it. And uh, specifically, yes, pollute the world with another podcast of white guys talking film. It was the time. It was the time. You know, everyone was uh, doing podcasts during the pandemic. I think I was telling you guys about that BBC article I read that was sort of looking back at the numbers and how there was such a, an explosion of, of new podcast content during the pandemic. But most of those, the vast majority did not survive the pandemic. Really, only, you know, like a handful of episodes. So for us to make it from there to here, I think is something we all should be very proud of. We've at least made it this far. And this might be the end, who knows? (laughs) Never. (laughs) We'll see. No, it's, it's funny. It is funny thinking about it over... All these 99 episodes, because what it's been two years Almost, now. Almost, yeah. Right? Um, when was the first one? It was like top of June? June 2021. Yeah. yeah. And I was extremely resistant to doing <laughs> this. And even when it started, I was not convinced I would last. Yeah. Well into the run. And yeah. yeah, I mean, I'm a guy who's like a paranoid, saddled with doubts, a second guesser, very much so. And I think that when the idea was pitched to me, that was my immediate reaction to Marsh. I'm like, Oh boy, you know, like I don't even listen to podcasts. <laughs> I can't, uh, you know, I can't stomach it. It's just not for me. And I was like, well, w- what sense would this make for me to even contribute to one? And it's been interesting because the first episode we did was like very fun. And I was very self-conscious when 
listening to it and getting notes, you know, when we were collaborating, collaborating on the edit of it, because that was when we we all like did so many drafts of the first episode. And now it's like turned into a well-oiled machine. But I think when I decided to just like keep doing it was this thought of like, well, it's just very fun, you know, and it's funny just like shooting the shit. And I think we're a quick witted group of guys i think there's a nice little dynamic so i thought you know why not let's keep going and then it ended up turning into something very different too because so much has changed in my life since we started i moved across the country and it's become something that's like really rooted me in my hometown you know and just like kept me connected with all of you and i'm not trying to get sentimental at the top of the episode please do but that's what we're here for it it was just it's yeah and it it was just interesting how it was something that i really thought was just not for me and i still don't listen to podcasts (laughs) uh like (laughs) well you're also a shy boy that's true yeah i mean for me uh i mean whenever i listen to an episode it's it's pretty much no different than before you had a podcast sitting around shooting the shit about movies and maybe there's a little bit more structure but it it's no different than what we would have been doing then so for me i've been doing a lot of traveling over the last couple of years and it's been nice to be able to listen to yeah i mean i remember that was one of like my first uh moments of realization of what the show even was was when you were away and you had texted us, and this is when I was still recording in Chicago, when you had texted us saying, like, I'm listening to this in the car and it feels like I'm at Andy's house. Yeah. And that we're all sitting on the warm leather chairs. Mm, uh, smoke is swirling in the air, you know? And it's like, it's like, it just, you felt like, I, you felt like you were hanging out with all of us. And I remember at that point, yeah, you were away a lot. Yeah. Um, and... I think that it's done something similar for me, and it is really nice when I'm sit, especially when I'm sitting and editing the episodes, um, because we've turned into this yet yeah, the workman like quality of the episodes where I do the first draft and do the mixing, and Marsh goes in and adds all the clips, and it is crazy editing it and how it sounds like you know we're all just hanging out, we're all just in the same room, and it's nice. It's it's personally something that's been like very touching. Uh, for me and it's like nice to have that to like look forward to every week so I do I you know a hundred episodes in I, I I it's very special for me I really enjoy it and I mean just even as it relates to movies uh, and I almost fancy myself at times thinking I don't even care about movies anymore <laughs> it, it does feel like doing this that watching um, or going through the list when I look back at the list of all the movies we've done I remember these better than any of the movies I've watched over the past two years you know, sure. uh, so in that sense, it's also very enriching. I just feel like I walk away with a, a stronger sense of what movies can do, what they're for, um, and what joy and pain can be found in them. <laughs> you know, so I, I've also I've really enjoyed that. <laughs> yeah, I'm with you on that, buddy. I mean, really, this has anchored me in a way that I did not anticipate when we first started, uh, and. There have been times through these very tumultuous two years that, you know, socially speaking, I think the world has conspired against all of us as humans. You know, we've we've stayed home so much more. We have, you know, gone through so much that, you know, especially while the pandemic was still 
somewhat raging, the gauntlet became one of my main sources of just getting out and and socializing with my friends. Uh, I know for me, it was a big part of my mental health, you know, to to just see you folks each week and and to have that to look forward to, you know. So for me, it's meant it's meant a lot, you know, not even necessarily creatively, but very, very personally uh, as well. So. Yeah, it's, it's, I mean, when, when we first did sit down, I remember Ryan sort of being like, but what are we going to talk about? (laughs) (laughs) I don't know, whatever comes into our heads. And, and, and I think it's certainly been that a lot of the time, but I think also it's been a great way for us to, to just dive deeper into this thing that we do love and that can be filled with a lot of frustrations when you look at the state of, world cinema, popular cinema these days. The gauntlet is, to me, an oasis where I know, even if I don't necessarily love the movie that was selected by one of my comrades, like, I'm still gonna find something in it that's way more worthwhile than 98% of the other crap that just gets sort of shoved down people's throats these days. So... So yeah, the gauntlet has 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 if anything for me, even as a person who's devoted his life to to studying film and to working with film, uh, has has revivified me in in truly truly magnificent ways. I mean, you both have introduced me to things I would never have sought out on my own. Uh, I mean, Alex, you're included in this for the times that you hey. joined the podcast. <laughs> and and I think that's that's really been the blessing is just to to have this sort of homework every week, this active viewing that that we have provided each other. Yeah, I think the element of giving is something I wasn't expecting um, from the way we designed it and how we initially thought about it, even though it was sort of baked into it. Because I feel like one of the big curses of of movie going and movie watching and just people's interaction with art in general is trying to self-identify with everything they encounter and thinking about, oh, how does this relate to me? Um, And it all just becomes like this very egocentric way of looking at art. And this has been a fun exercise in seeing both of you in the movies that you present for every episode where I'm watching these films and instead of thinking about my own relationship to them, I'm thinking about both of you and I'm thinking about the spirit of both of you in the films that you select and seeing where the passion is, where the love is, why you were drawn to these things. And just because of that, it does make me feel less disconnected from the films themselves, I feel. And just from both of you in general, having moved, it, it does create this very nice bridge um, and making it more of a collaborative process of just even encountering art it's very nice yeah i just like really that i it allows me to smoke in the garage (laughs) that's like really why i'm here and uh you got a whole setup yeah thank you both for allowing uh that dream to come true yeah yeah Uh, marsh needs more things to edit (laughs) yeah Uh, well unless you want to get more sentimental um 
I wanted to kick things off before we got to this, the, the plan, the blueprint, um, you know, to go off of that, not only have I been a guest twice, but I'm also one of the first listeners of the show. And there's a lot of value there, you know. I, I don't I don't know your numbers, but I'm sure many of your <laughs> listeners will agree beyond the value, you know, you're giving each other. Um, it's a great listen. And so I wanted to just ask, and I haven't, you know, told you I wanted to ask this, but from your perspective, what did you th- what do you think was the moment looking back at the very beginning when what you understand the gauntlet to be today really solidified to me i mine all timers episode 4 summertime and i think just that collision between independence day and the kurosawa movie um and then beyond that the discussion is really where to me i was like okay this is I get it. I can see this as not just my boys hanging out shooting the shit, but this is a really fun conversation. We're getting into a lot of places that are way past the surface. Um, and I think to me, that's what, that's what the gauntlet's all about. Not only looking into the little nooks and crannies of the history of world cinema, but also then trying to dig up all the dust underneath these things and connect them i mean i i don't want to sound like i'm blowing smoke up anybody's ass here but i felt it in our first episode i sure did i mean i i loved the place that we started i was really reflecting on that just just in the 100 the 100 you know or 99 episodes to this point uh of looking at episode one and episode 99 and obviously it's interesting for people who don't know our first episode was like Chicago guys cuz we are Chicago boys and we started by focusing on that city we all love and and you know have have grown in and and where we met each other and i i was just filled with such joy that afternoon i was nervous too like ryan you know when you suddenly put a microphone in front of your face you 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 do start to feel things creep in that aren't there when you are just talking you know out of your ass to your buddies to try and get a rise out of them you know but but to me i remember walking away from that going man i cannot wait for number 2 and and that feeling has has been there and i know that we've had ups and downs all of us in our personal lives and in our professional lives. And, and sometimes you are balancing so much to come here, you know, to find the time to watch the movies, especially when one asshole program a, a three hour movie, you know, and you're like, God damn, I'm going to have at least five hours. I got to set aside. And then however many hours we got to record and, and whatever else we got to do around it. But but honestly, the 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 feeling from that first episode for me has has carried on all the way to episode ninety nine, and now all of us sitting here. I mean, I've I I I felt it from the get go. It's funny. I would I hate to be redundant, but I would say the same thing. I was thinking that 
summertime also set a standard for what was possible with the 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 episodes and the way the double features functioned but truly i feel like the key things that we've explored on the show can be traced back to that first episode because it's really two films that take on completely different meanings by putting them next to each other and i feel like that first episode is funny because there were so many interesting happenstances right like it was about two steves one of them starting their career and one of them ending their career because one of them ended up dying like immediately after it came out yeah and one a legit tough it also, guy the other uh a man filled with nothing but lies and and puffery <laughs> right and it featured so many of the things that have become standard, weird interpretations of the prompt. I was bucking in the first yeah, episode, and up. I had no intention to. I thought it was a Chicago movie, and then it wasn't. <laughs> but it was also more than that. It was like Kankakee. It was all of these other neighboring communities of Chicago and that were standing in for other places. And I feel like that's one of the other things about the gauntlet is these double features, how they were just the prompts themselves make the movies mean something different than if you had just encountered them blindly. Yeah. Well, I think now is a good time to, to go to the mailbag. You've got mail. Uh, while we're on this subject, um, we have a, a message here from a friend and fan of the pod, Eric Freeman. Uh, he writes, uh, Dear Gauntlet, congratulations on this special milestone. From the start, I've enjoyed spending time listening to you all discuss movies not readily available to the public. <laughs> Though, frankly, I know the real Durkee could not possibly measure up to what I've imagined via your descriptions. I'd like to celebrate the occasion with a question looking back on what you've covered up to this point. One of the most endearing elements of the gauntlet is when one of you makes a pick that turns out to have no strong connection to the topic. <laughs> a choice that doesn't buck up against the topic as much as it strikes a glancing blow. Even when there's little connection to the subject, you charge ahead. It even happened in the very first episode when Ryan picked a Chicago movie that hardly took place in Chicago. <laughs> that, that set the tone for the show. You'll respect the format even when you'd be better off starting over. <laughs> <laughs> My question is this. Which movie do you wish you could take back? To put it another way, which pick did you instantly regret having to explain on the show? And what would you replace it with if you could do it again? Please note that I'm not asking for the worst movie you've picked, more like one that addressed the topic in the least interesting way. Here's to the next 100. Wow. Thank you, Eric. Love you, buddy. Um, I'll start. I, I can start right away. I know mine 100%. Um, I mean, I lost sleep over it that <laughs> night after we finished recording, uh, and it was for our, our re relaxation week when I selected John Wayne's Brannigan. And Ryan was just so unhappy the whole time. He was not game for it, didn't, didn't click with him. And I was I was like sweating uh, while we were trying to trying to I, for me trying to to justify like why I brought it and and you know like I knew it was going to be a stretch when I when I brought it and and it all made sense in my head and I thought we were going to have a blast with it but uh, yeah once we got into it uh, Brannigan uh, a big a big swing and a miss and uh, <laughs> I did I did regret it I did regret that one.
Yeah, I will say that was like the one time I was legitimately upset, like <laughs> a, like actually mad, like not playfully mad, like actually mad, only because the genesis of the prompt was I was concerned about my own mental health <laughs> and I needed something to calm me down, uh, and I thought I was tossing a softball, <laughs> but then yeah, it, that did hit me like a ton of bricks when that happened. In hindsight, extremely funny. Um, <laughs> But it was it was challenging in the moment. I would say, though, you know, it's funny because one of our prompts in our series of retrospective discussions is biggest buck. And to me, I did commit the biggest buck of them all. And it was the film that I uh, did. I did say, like, I want to withdraw it. Um, (laughs) that was, that was the apple, um, because I did think it was something else. I, I read the synopsis and I glanced through it and I was like, oh, this is perfect. And then, cause I thought it was a clever way of dealing with the prompt. Um, (laughs) and then actually watching it, I, I realized I had made a mistake. It just, the movie wasn't what I thought it was, (laughs) you know? And I had said, I remember texting both of you, have you guys watched the apple yet? (laughs) Uh, because I had another movie to to use, yeah. <laughs> and Andy had already seen it. <laughs> I know because I waited too long. But that was the one where I was like, ah, fuck. And I I wish I I like thought about withdrawing it. I'm I'm gonna take it out. I, I got another one. Um, but then, as Eric Freeman says, that ended up being one of the funniest episodes <laughs> we ever did. And the fact that we did soldier forward with it made me by the end realize it was the perfect pick because I couldn't then imagine the episode in any other way. And to be honest, that philosophy (laughs) has affected my day-to-day life. (laughs) (laughs) Like just trusting the gut, moving forward, making decisions, stop, you know, re-traumatizing myself by trying to change the decisions like that that ethos of the gauntlet has affected my professional life. <laughs> <laughs> well, in your defense, you know, 5 minutes into the into watching the apple, I remember distinctly thinking in my head, well, here I am. I'm on the gauntlet. Yeah. I was not prepared. Yeah. I, I do remember <laughs> side texting Alex like while I was watching the Apple and just being like, I'm going to fucking ring this guy up on the episode. Like he has no idea. <laughs> He's getting a, he's getting a, uh, he's going to get a lashing for this one. Well, it was such a funny episode too because. I so objectively was the one that bucked up against the topic the most, but because of how the conversation evolved, it turned into you primarily attacking Alex well, for yeah. his pick, picked, even though it did answer the prompt. I picked a new-to-me <laughs> movie, too, and, you know, it took the heat off me for sure. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Mine was pretty mild compared. Yeah, your picks did kind of fit the prompt as if I was the, the parent who had come home... <laughs> from right. the weekend and I'm looking at the house all messed up and I'm kind of going room by room, you know, with this, like, you know, who spilled here? You know, what is this? You know, you think I yeah. wouldn't notice this broken lamp? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. we, we made you feel I, like yeah, a I love when we internalize the prompts and they like turn into fucked up weird things uh, because of our own interpretations of them. Yeah. What about you, Marsh? Yeah, I feel like mine are, are ones that, you know, where I I picked a new to me movie that was just kind of like average and was completely overshadowed by like an absolute masterwork, you know? So like 
Uh, I think about like visiting hours and syndromes in a century. Like I just look back being like, <laughs> wow, visiting hours sucked. You know, <laughs> like we were watching a pitch pong, you know, it just seems so like, what did we really get out of, of that movie about hospitals? Like they were scary and Michael Ironside like lurked around. Like some of that stuff of course was very cool, but like it didn't, it didn't do anything like, for for hospital, you know, <laughs> other than just this weird like Canadian fever dream, uh, and I think similarly, Highlander two next to On the Silver Globe, it was just like, what's the point? Like, all we want to do is talk <laughs> about On the Silver Globe, like a much more troubled production and a much better film than than Highlander two, which we again they had an okay time with it, but it's just sort of like I don't know, it's kind of like feels like a, a thud next to. Uh, Jawowski's uh, epic, uh, you know. Yeah, but you know what? There's been a lot of those throughout. Oh yeah. You know, we've we've definitely had plenty of weeks where where you know one one film has been upstaged by <laughs> by the other for a plethora of, of reasons. Yeah. You know? But I will again say, I there's not a single thing we have watched where I have like walked away from it going. I wish I hadn't seen that. Maybe that's also partly because I'm not one of those people. Right. I'm never the, that was a waste of my goddamn time guy because let's be honest, there's a plenty of time that I just waste on my own. I'm not going to blame another filmmaker for that. You know, I, I piddle away plenty of hours of the day. So, so the, honestly, everything we've watched, you know, from, from the good, the bad to the ugly for me has, has been a pleasure really in one form or another even if it is just to come here and and dress it down i'm i'm glad we've watched everything yeah i mean i i, I can tell you the, the lowest rated movie that we watched for me was white squall and i'm still glad we got to make fun of it um because it's just awful you know and, Ri and ridley needs to be brought down a peg <laughs> you know i know we all agree upon that so yeah, I well see it's funny cuz I was biting my tongue uh just now with what you were saying Andy. I think White Squall is the one movie I walked away thinking like <laughs> I wish I didn't see it. <laughs> like I would have been better off without it. Lonely and I don't want to be. Don't know why these feelings have come over me. I'm lonely and I finally see how I need the people who are close to me. Just give me all of my friends and I'll be happy again. Oh, bring them back home where you know they belong. Just give me all of my friends. I'm in heaven again. Feeling like the whole world is singing along. Oh, I'm lonely and I don't want to be. I want a life of love and of harmony. I'm lonely and I finally see how I can make this dream come true for me. Just give me all of my friends and I'll be happy again. Oh, bring them back home where you know they belong. Just give me all of my friends. I'm in heaven again. Feeling like the whole world is singing along. To a song that says we'll always be near. You'll never be lonely again. It's a song that says that 
let's get into some numbers. Um, we've put together a few, well, I shouldn't say we, Ryan and Eric have put together a few, just a few, uh, uh, averages of, of the stats for the gauntlet. So what do you got? Well, I can tell you, Alex, thank you, uh, that we recorded, uh, and published 10,646-ish, uh, minutes of radio, which is... Uh, roughly 177 hours. Hell yeah. I'm proud wow. of you guys. <laughs> yeah. That sounds about right. I'd like to see those numbers up against our, our Battlefield 1 numbers. Yeah. You know, I'd like to yeah. see <laughs> hours played on Battlefield uh, Yeah. If we had tabulated all the hours uh, I've spent cutting these episodes, let me tell you. It's funny, though, because the, that time has gotten shorter and shorter with every subsequent episode, and now it's like very easy to just plow through them. But there were, I think back on some of the earlier ones where we got really ambitious, and the f- funniest example I always think of is the the um, the chosen one episode, where the raw episode was almost two hours and forty five minutes. Uh, that was like trimming the fat off the beginning and end. And I had to do some like radical cutting in order to make it listenable. And I remember deleting Ernest Borgnine from the conversation. I had to like pick threads from Barabbas to. get rid of to make the episode like just over two hours and he was a casualty (laughs) so when i think about all those those numbers adding up you killed ernest borgnine well look dude barabbas is like three hours long we had a lot to say about richard fleischer's epic vision of uh, christ and all that so uh yeah yeah well i guess some, some of the other numbers that i could i could bring up um, I have us tabulated at 31 countries, which is pretty cool. And some of the interesting things I noticed, the first 52 episodes when I did our first year in review, we had only done like two French films, and this like second half of the 100 episodes, we did 10, French which I thought was interesting. Like, does France just like really entered into the chat uh, there? But in terms of things that were most represented, I mean, of the... 100 episodes 107 of those movies were from the usa but then the other big hitters are there's 12 french movies there were five from hong kong and germany oh i forgot italy six italian films so those are those are the biggest the rest are all like two or three or just you know a solo one brazil you know came in with four that's like pretty good and then i one thing i was really interested in when i was doing all of the data and seeing the spread of the years was seeing where where each of us sort of found our home you know like what decade we we all called home and Andy, you know, for you have the the most of a single decade um, out of everyone. You have 16 films from the 1990s. Um, so impressive there. I'm not far behind. I had 15 films in the 1980s. And Marsh had 14 films from the 1970s. Uh, so that's like an interesting trend. Andy, you in our entire history of the gauntlet have never picked a film from the 1940s or the 1950s. Uh, yeah, 40s and 50s sucks. Oh. So. <laughs> like, you know it's covered. <laughs> Disagree. I think Marsh has the most, like, equitable distribution in terms of decades. There's, like, a clear, 
you know, spread. Crucially, I've only picked two films from the aughts, and you guys have picked way more than that. A, tr- oh, a truly I, terrible I, time in cinema history. I've probably, I've probably picked the most <laughs> contemporary films, I would think. You know, contemporary being the last two decades. Ryan's got 11 films from the 2000s. Really? You have seven, yeah. but oh, you have nine really from the 2010s, me. and he has two. So ah. remember, I did a I did a good chunk of made for TV films uh, and some children's films, and most of those were sourced from the early 2000s. I don't really think of myself as a 70s guy. Uh, yeah, that surprised and, me. And yet here we are. Yeah. You know. Well, you all know me. Yeah. I'm obsessed with the end of history. Of I'm obsessed with the 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 wild yeah. and woolly. You're 90s. the Fukuyama of the pod. Yeah, you know? I always have been. <laughs> yeah, you know? I'm Clinton Pill, dude. In hindsight, I wish I had like tabulated how many films Andy selected that were about soldiers and military boys. <laughs> Ooh, yeah. <laughs> I should quite a big into number myself, but you know. But yeah, technically, Andy, you had the most. From the 2000s onward, and specifically from the 2010s, uh, you had nine films from the 2010s. Um, Cinema's so yeah. not that. But those dude. are no, I guess not. Yeah. So those are my biggest takeaways from the actual numbers of of what we've done. Love it. The stats. Yeah, I picked the most classic Hollywood films. <laughs> I'm sorry. There's another one. It's like Thunderbirds. Like. Who remembers that? You know? <laughs> I barely remember. I remember that. some shots from it. That's true. Looked good. I remember. Wellman's seen better days. In fact, I, I made I made I was so upset about Thunderbirds I, I brought Wellman back, you know, in prime form. Mm. Wild Category of the night. You have all picked your favorite singular performance in a film from these first 99 episodes. 198 movies. Yeah? 198? Something like that. that. Uh, So let's start with you, Andy. What is your favorite performance? 196 movies. 196. Mm. There's been so many, so many amazing 
performances, it was very hard to narrow down. I think that's going to be a, a theme. I'll be the first one to say it. It's going to be so hard to narrow it down. But, you know, um, I, I guess with, with a lot of my picks that are upcoming here, I, I thought about, I, I tried to factor in people who I feel have had already a lot of recognition. This was my own criteria. I'm just going to lay it out as I begin you know, doling out my gauntlies or whatever we're calling these awards. Um, <laughs> so I was trying to, I tried to, in many respects, focus on people who I think um, might not necessarily uh, be someone or or something that you know people people think of. So for me, I gotta say, my my, I think one of the most dynamic performances, uh, one of Honestly, the most impressive performances I've seen in any of the movies we watched uh, has to be Curtis Snow from Snow on the Bluff for, I believe, our uh, Hood Films week. Um, I mean, this is a mock documentary that I think solely rests on the shoulders of its central figure, Curtis Snow, who is so incredibly lived in because the experiences are in many respects coming from his own actual experiences in life. But he is so engaging, so complex, so dynamic, funny, charming, terrifying. It is an absolute like force of nature in he is an absolute force of nature in that film. I, I'm giving mine to Curtis Snow for Snow on the Bluff. Congratulations, Curtis. Ryan, how about you? <laughs> um, I had two that immediately came to mind. The my favorite performance, I think, of all of these movies, or at least the one that really struck a chord with me and I remember very vividly, is Graham Greene in Clear Cut. Um, I think that's like uh, an extremely unique performance. We did that one on the uh, No Escape episode. And he's awesome, and it's so rare that you get to see him as the lead performer in a movie and like the central figure of it. So I think giving him space to be sinister and funny at the same time was really awesome. And then uh, honorable mention to all the EOs in EO. <laughs> Yeah. I all really the donkeys, all the donkeys performances. Yeah. <laughs> all the beautiful donkeys. I mean, we should have just had a separate category for animals. Yeah. Animal yeah. yeah no kidding. Honestly. Pour one out for Jack and the rest of the incredible journey gang. You yeah. Know? <laughs> mm -hmm. How about you? Uh, yeah. Well, I got to go all the way back for probably, probably my favorite performance. Uh, Lon Chaney in The Penalty from 1920, directed by Wallace Worsley. Uh, this is the film that made Lon Chaney a superstar because he performs in a contraption uh, in which he has no legs, and he hobbles around this film as Blizzard, the underworld boss of San Francisco, who uh, at some point, out of just pure rage, uh, mobilizes the forces of labor and anarchism uh, against the city of San Francisco in an all-out assault. Um, but really, it's just like one of the craziest physical feats I've ever seen any actor uh, do. It's Lon Chaney, you know, obviously. Uh, he's well known for that kind of thing, but I still think just 
goddamn, you know, how did he do it? Uh, really one of a kind. Uh, and I also want to shout out uh, John Voight in Looking to Get Out, one of the most <laughs> unpredictable, unhinged, funny, terrifying performances uh, that anyone that anyone's given on the gauntlet. And of course, I brought that film, uh, and I used to gamble a lot and play a lot of cards. So, like for me, uh, just like that kind of sleazy protagonist, I think Voight is on another level. I mean, he was writing the script too; like he was up his own ass, like fully just committed to. Uh, this milieu and this kind of guy. And I think it's like really a great performance. Yeah. You know? Oh yeah. <laughs> I will, since we did the, a couple shout outs, I'm going to throw one last shout yeah. out that I think we all can agree on. Yeah. One of my, again, one of the pleasures is sometimes bringing things to the pod that, that, you know, the gang are going to have a blast with. And I think we all were absolutely blown away by Jean-Paul Belmondo trying to kill himself with all of his stunt work in fear over the city. I think special shout out for the stunt work that he pulls off in that movie, which is still one of the most mind-blowing things I've seen on this podcast. Just like him on that speeding, on the roof of that speeding L train uh, dangling from the buildings. Dangling I mean, from the helicopter. Dangling from a lot of very high places. I mean, big shout out to Belmondo for entertaining us all by by nearly dying in several incredible stunt pieces. He'd be my stunt performer of the of the pod. Uh, next category is still in performance, but the favorite ensemble performance, the Pals Award. Marsh, how about you first? My first pick is is Breaking Away. The Boys from Breaking Away. Classic, of course, another film I brought. I love uh, a lifelong classic, but uh, I think they're all just terrific. You know, that post-college uh, ennui and anger of Bloomington, Indiana, beautifully rendered by a gang of rascals. You know, Dennis Quaid uh, at his peak, uh <laughs> Daniel Stern at his at his peak, yeah. uh, like debut movies. You're yeah, there. Yeah, exactly. Uh, Jackie Earl Haley, we love him. Dennis Christopher, uh, they kill it, you know. And and maybe it's because they got like Paul Dooley to play off of. But uh, it's just like it feels real to me, you know, that camaraderie and that friendship in that movie that is like just really nice, you know. Um, I I had two that came to mind. The first one is all five. Jerry Lewis's in The Family Jewels. Yes. <laughs> uh, I think that's like a really impressive ensemble because he, he disappears uh, in all of those char- characters. But, but the, the, the one I really think about a lot, though, is definitely 92 in the Shade because I think that that is like a, an all-timer collection of just like strung out 70s dudes, you know, um, and gals. We've got Peter Fonda. We got Warren Oates. We got Margaret Kidder. We got Burgess Meredith. We have Harry Dean Stanton. We have William Hickey. We have John Quaid. You, Marsh, you just mentioned a Quaid. Um, yeah, it is a different Quaid, though. But um, Who the fuck is John yeah. Quaid? <laughs> <laughs> he, well, John, you'd know him if you saw him. Uh, he's he's in a lot of Clint Eastwood movies, actually. He uh, pretty heavily featured in both Every Which Way But Loose and Every Which Way You Can. Uh, so yeah, but I think the 92 in the Shade gang 
that's like a favorite ensemble for me because that's just they're all just hanging out so it's like nice to see them all and they're so sweaty it's hot it's 92 in the shade. Well, um, my ensemble pick might be a little surprising based on the ones that you folks have uh, have laid out. But uh, honestly, I, I my number one was the cast of largely non-professionals in court. I thought that the the Indian people featured in that film were just... They, I was transfixed by every single person in that movie. Even the silent members of whatever courtroom were just simply sitting there plodding through their day-to-day like drudgery of this incredibly corrupt and oppressive system. Uh, obviously, the central performers are amazing. The the I, I'm forgetting a lot of their names, but you know the old man, the lawyer. The prosecuting attorney, the 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 cycle of horrible judges. I mean, everyone in that movie was just so spot on in presenting to us just like the 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 horrors of modernity and and the soul crushing quality of life that the filmmaker was presenting in modern day India. I thought was was just so remarkable to me you know on that note i want to uh shout out the the larger cast of uh i do not care if we go down in history as barbarians because that's a film where i think a lot of the pleasure of that film is derived from the extras and the extra work and and you know the main character putting on this production and it's just these you know these romanian guys smoking on a tank listening to like weird euro music you know uh or being sympathetic to nazis in this like anti-fascist play she's what she's putting on you know just the whole interplay of like and and different types uh of romanians uh in in all those extras i think i i crack up thinking about them uh often oh yeah yeah since you called it the pals i I like later added a note of just like my favorite duo because we've had some great duos. Oh yeah, and I gotta say, I'm I'm gonna give a big old big old gauntly here to my 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 Dion brothers, yes. Stacy Keach and Frederick Forrest, <laughs> yeah. dude, romping and stomping, oh. dude. They <laughs> they are just in that movie. They are so fun watching them rob, kill, steal. Uh, eat at a, a fish fancy fish restaurant, embarrass themselves, chase skirts. I mean, they, they were are on my short list. Amazing yeah. in that movie. Yeah, you mentioning court for some reason also reminded me of um, one of my other options, which was the ensemble of first graders in first graders, because it also felt like they were an interesting collection of folks who were trying to really, you know, disrupt a system and playing playing their own game. Uh, so shout out to, to all them too. Love it. Look at us already like bucking even the format of our show of like, let's give out one award. We've already given out like. <laughs> they're not awards. They're 15 faves. or 16. Excuse me. They're not. This is yeah, not an memories. award show. This is a celebration in retrospective. <laughs> I was very clear. Um, congratulations to all those ensembles. Uh, our next category of the evening is favorite overall direction in a film. Ryan, let's start with you. What is your favorite director, directors of The Gauntlet? 
Yeah, I had a hard time, and I actually don't have really strong reasons for either of these, but I was thinking about how moved I was by Autumn's Tale and how well Mabel Chung directed that film. Uh, There's a precision there for such a romantic film that I really admired. And also, I hate children actors in general, and that was one of the reasons I was blown away by Jean Eustache directing the children in My Little Loves. Uh, That is some of like the best direction of children I've ever seen in a movie. So I was thinking about him too. Well, I assume Andy's going to say Manuel de Oliveira. So I'll, uh, I'll let him have the honors, but certainly, uh, I was very moved by, by no, or the vainglory of command, uh, in, in a big way. But, um, I would have to say, you know, just reflecting on it, I was sort of thinking about too, like, you know, we, we've talked a lot about like the backgrounds of these films and like, troubled productions and and I don't remember any facts about this film but when I looked back I just thought like what a hard film to make and it just impressed me so much uh and that's The Cyclist by Makhmoboff uh just what a crazy movie like just a guy you know it's a movie where a guy rides a bicycle in a circle and I'm thinking like how do you shoot that like that's just so much work. It's so complicated to shoot that with all those extras, the guy constantly riding the bicycle, like that camera just spinning around. It's just so inventive. It's just so creative to sustain that concept visually. Uh, it's amazing, you know? So, uh, for sure. And, uh, I mean, God, obviously, you know, we've had fucking Brisson, Ophuls, you know, like all yeah, these all these people, whatever, <laughs> fuck them. But uh, yeah, yeah. I want to, uh, of course, shout out Glaubert Rocha. I think Entranced Earth still is a movie that just pops up in my mind all the time because it's uh, of its intensity and, and of its anger. And it's just like wild images and sounds. I mean, it's a very chaotic, in-your-face movie and one that... Uh, yeah, it's just constantly in the back of my mind. So uh, shout out there. Well, um, you know, I, I appreciate the prompt on on Manuel de Oliveira. And I think we all agree that that's one of our new favorite films. But that's not where oh, I... Oh, shit. He certainly was on my short list. And, and, and don't worry, we'll, we'll be hearing from him again this evening. Uh, but I want to give a big old gauntlet shout out to a film which I now include in my aesthetics class so I was absolutely taken again like reflecting on these things the the joys of being introduced to something you'd never seen before and probably would have never sought out uh I'm I'm gonna have to say I was uh completely taken by Simone Barbès or Virtue directed by Marie-Claude Trelu in her debut. And for me, that's part of why I think I'm, I'm including uh, Marie-Claude Trelu here, because for a debut feature, the restraint and yet the vibrancy of a film, which uh, is really so, so simple and yet has such incredible like humanism in it and, and ideas about you know, life, love, killing time. It's one of my big, um, it's one of the big joys I've had with you folks. So shouting out here to, to Marie-Claude Trelu. I was kind of hoping you were going to say uh, you assign 
uh, Halloween resurrection in your aesthetics course now. <laughs> Definitely not. But, um, Definitely not. Too bad. Treat, motherfucker. <laughs> uh, okay. Uh, next up, we have the favorite images. A nebulous category, a little bit. Cinematography, maybe a little bit more, maybe a little less. Yeah, well... Yeah, because I was thinking about it, and I was originally thinking of it as just cinematography, and then I threw that out of my mind, and I was just thinking about images I remembered from films. And it's funny, because I feel like one of the, you know, listening to myself over all these episodes and thinking, like, things I repeat, you know, shit we all say over and over again. One of the things I feel like I say a lot is, like, I'm never going to forget that image. Uh, <laughs> and it's funny how many of them I've forgotten. But the <laughs> just, like, a, the first things that popped into my head... Uh, definitely like when Durkey's in the, uh, that like pit and all that shit falls on him <laughs> and then he's all bloodied. The image of like a bloodied Durkey after a bunch of rocks fall on him is, is something I think about a lot. Not beautiful I think images, about, but necessary images. <laughs> right. Yeah. And like related to that, like a, just a monkey on a skateboard, um, <laughs> in general Doesn't from get MVP to, yeah. And like specifically, I guess from that movie to Richard Karn just being like sunbaked from his Hawaii vacation, presumably, and then like showing up in Vancouver to shoot this movie. Very funny. Him just being like just so red in the face. And then I would also just say Elvis Presley and Charles Bronson in the same frame of a movie. Uh, that That's like a ultimate gauntlet image for me. Iconic. The two of them in the boxing rink or like driving. Yeah. Unbelievable. If we ever redesign our logo, we'll have Bronson in Elvis's corner, you Ooh, know, for sure. Yeah. Season two yeah. logo. <laughs> <laughs> a nice meditative image I think about a lot, too, is the water skiing in the island of St. Matthews. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. yeah. Marsh, favorite images? Uh, James Benning only needed four images <laughs> to make the film Stemple Pass one of the more memorable films I think we've had because uh, it mm-hmm. is just... Uh, four shots in a feature uh, length film as James Benning himself uh, reads from the Unabomber's diary. And we look at uh, a recreation of the cabin uh, and the landscapes of that particular uh, place, you know, and uh, it's just truly an amazing movie, you know, a landscape film, certainly, but much more than that with the sound and the acting and the the whole overall design. Uh, love that shit. Um, and hey, just recently we did Belly. Uh, movies don't look better than that. Uh, you know, as we talked about in that episode, uh, that film represents, you know, an alternative future for American cinema that never happened. Yeah. And it exists and it looks crazy. And uh, I wish movies looked like that. Yeah, Belly, one of yeah. the craziest <laughs> looking movies of all time. Honestly. Amazing. Um, I guess I, I was thinking a little bit more traditionally about just the sort of overall cinematography. And I have to say, um, the things that I saw in EO, I have not seen before. There's a lot in EO (laughs) that has really stuck with me. Um, some of the insane drone shots, the, the shifts towards, you know, like almost like red and black on the cinematography. Uh, I thought EO yeah. was just such a gorgeous, gorgeous film. And uh, I'm giving my I'm, I'm giving a big shout out to that cinematographer who I think is his name is Michael Dimek. 
at least that's what it was listed as. And I'm not really super familiar with his work, but uh, they they crafted some really really impressive stuff in in EO. And and I do also want to just give a shout out to uh, a uh, a man who's been on the gaunt, the Gauntlet Pod several times. Uh, director slash cinematographer Peter Hyams. The man may make some stinkers, but you can rest assured they're going to look amazing. That guy has an eye. And and even in his mid-films, they still, to me, look better than 99% of the other Hollywood schlock you're going to see out there. What a legend. Uh, In that spirit, Andy, what are your favorite sounds? I uh, only wrote one film down, and I wrote it down immediately. My pick for uh, sounds, uh, best sound, sounds that stay with me, haunt me, occupy my brain space. It's got to be from Robert Bresson's Lancelot du Lac. The sounds of clanking of armor, uh, hearing people coming from, you know, like 50 yards away because you're hearing that armor just clanking around. So much clanking, clanking, clank. I can't get it out of my fucking head, dude. Heavy metal. Lancelot du Lac. Robert Bresson, fucking genius. The sound in that movie is, is, is a masterpiece. I um, <laughs> I I have a couple quick ones. Uh, one of them is from the most mid movie I picked, which I would say is Vaca, the Spanish film from the '90s, and it's the sounds of them fucking chopping that wood mm-hmm. throughout the whole movie. It's like again a movie that I don't think is very good ultimately, but I do think about sequences from it all the fucking time and i think about them doing that like wood chopping competition that is like some very memorable stuff uh some of my other favorite sounds are sounds that i was certainly not expecting so i wrote down the sounds from ganga bruta because i asked for silent movies and marsh brought a movie that had sounds in them so i thought that was like kind of fun um and then the last one i have is how the movie time stalkers the michael schultz film took like sounds from other movies specifically star wars and reused them for the sound effects of the time travel which i think is really nice because you watch garbage and you hear the x-wing noise and you go like ah the fucking star wars soundtrack now when i hear those noises i think like oh michael schultz's time stalkers (laughs) so like that's nice he he like renewed those noises for me we talked about it on on the pod when we did this episode, but rewatching Southern Comfort uh, and picking up on a lot of the the animal noises and like the really like dense kind of chain always changing off screen like swamp noise is it's just a master class in mixing and, and keeping it also like interesting too. You know, you never know what you're going to be hearing uh, in that movie and that fits, of course, uh, the subject matter. So love that. And uh, I was going to say Simone Barbas because I think the off-screen like porn sounds and the sounds that of, of the stuff we never see uh, is so crucial to the experience and it in, it really like enlivens it and enriches it when uh, the patrons are coming in and out and you can just hear what they're seeing you know uh, love that love that shit you know my again in my studies class the students like they they all pick up on that and and like highlight that you know because we we talk about it in relation to 
Laura Mulvey's concept of destruction of pleasure as a radical weapon. And they like will highlight that and they'll be like, the porn sounds so disgusting when you're just hearing it disembodied from the image. And it's like, yes, exactly, right? Well done. Great director, Marie-Claude Trillou. Godly. Never found a four-leaf clover to bring good luck to me. No rabbit's foot, no lucky star, no magic wishing tree, but I got lucky. I got lucky. Yes, I got lucky. Lucky when, when I found you. shoulder no horseshoe on my door but i got you to hold me tight and who could ask for more oh i got lucky i got lucky yes i got lucky, lucky when, when i found you into Marsh's mailbag over here and uh, see what we got. We've got a, a message from uh, the Prince of Lisbon, Nabil. Uh, he says, hi, boys. You have to remove one from the history of cinema. What do you choose? Every film that's over three hours and 30 minutes long or the filmographies of Robert Brisson and John Ford? <laughs> Wow. That's a that's a very unhinged question. Um, I'll start. I, I, I think it's pretty easy for me. I'm going to get rid of, I'm going to say goodbye to Brisson and Ford because, man, there are some, I think I'm looking at it utilitarian wise, right? Yeah. There's some really amazing long films. We get so many more voices. I could I could lose two if 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 in this regard as well, I never even knew that they existed. But <laughs> but if I did know, then I guess I'd already seen them. And yeah, and what would what would cinema be like if Robert Brisson and John Ford never existed? I mean, yeah. we're talking alter, alternate history here. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Oh my God. Like, what would? Yeah, the great eight-hour films would yeah. they even exist Berlin without Alexander John Ford? Plots, R.I.P. You know. Um, yeah, oh I'm with God. you, Andy. I gotta say. Uh, it sucks, but uh, you know more filmmakers would be included in the list of, of three-hour and thirty-minute movies uh, than just the two filmmakers. One very prolific, and the other not very. But uh, yeah, just gotta go sheer numbers. I can't lose like eight hours make a day. You know, I just can't do. I just can't do it. Can't lose any Wisemans. <laughs> yeah, can't lose any Wisemans, dude. Oh. Yeah, because I was gonna yeah. say like I can't even imagine what cinema would be like without John Ford yeah, and thinking be, about that yeah. legacy. Yeah, yeah, yeah but to, yeah, to lose Wiseman is someone I do value uh, more than John Ford <laughs> by a little bit. Um, that would be tough. Yeah, it would. Uh, we'd have to have the casualties. I think. Look at it this the, way: the if you had, boys. if you had no Ford. No Duke, no John Wayne. Think no about Brannigan. yeah, that's true. Ryan, it's like Ryan imagines a world with no Brannigan. It's like the utopia picture, you know. 
there's also here a bonus question for me. Uh, Nabil asks, would you rather see the Bulls win back-to-back championships this decade or have a leading role in the next Hong Sang-soo film as an American film professor teaching for a semester in Seoul? Oh. Uh, and that's easy for me. Uh, it is one of, look, the Bulls have won six times in my lifetime, yeah. and it is my dream to play an American in an Asian film, any country, <laughs> if you're listening. I'll, I'll, I'll pay my own flight out there. I mean, Hong Sang Su, if you're listening, I, I can just be a guy. You might have a better shot with North Korea, to be yeah, honest. Exactly, than South yeah, exactly. You know, all I got to do is defect, and, and they'll put you Dude, in movies. When I was watching the Battle of Holy Lake Changjin, I was just like, why am I not one of these army guys? Yeah. Like, I could. I, the right age like I these could, american thugs yeah exactly like you want me to be like an evil american guy in the korean war like pay me you know yeah. like yeah so easily that you know Holy i love shit. the bulls but uh hong if you're listening you know just hit me up marshlands thank you nabil those are those are beautiful questions <laughs> well up next yeah you tell me pal we have our favorite production design overall. Ryan, let's... Montage, but, you know, we can start. Oh, oh, yeah, we no, yeah, very important. I thought we ended with that. Where does this come in my mind. What the Sherman hell? Hey. editing out the editing category. <laughs> Suspicious. I would never. We should have got Seth MacFarlane to do this, dude. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> uh, I, could be, I, I could be playing Zelda right now. Uh, up next, we have... Favorite montage, whether it's editing overall, favorite sequence. What is your favorite use of montage? Marsh, start with you. Holy shit. God I mean, we've we've seen it all, you know, and I might have to just do like a drive-by here because uh, we've seen so many things. I mean, I think what we saw George Kuchar do with real-time editing in a video camera. In I'm Weather sure Diary. we all wrote that down. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Weather Diary number one, I think, is just unbelievably impressive. Uh, I think about Body and Soul, Oscar Michaud, because his extremely unorthodox flashback structures, like, to this day, are very challenging and very interesting because, uh, again, it's like not exactly what, yeah, like a classic Hollywood film would do, uh, but it's still uh, every bit as engaging. It's just a very peculiar, like, way to tell a story that's very fascinating. Um, but thinking, like, overall editing, I mean, like, Unstoppable is a, is a feat of, uh, you know, Soviet montage in a Hollywood context for the 21st century. I mean, it's amazing. And uh, videograms of a revolution as, like, a found footage uh, object is just an unbelievably crafted thing that's a, a feat of editing from Faraki and company you know I forgot you watched that movie in the gauntlet yeah what is the <laughs> disturbance dude that was when Andy <laughs> explained what an event was or perhaps wasn't mm-hmm. yeah yeah by the way, well, yeah, of course, I, since uh, you brought up videograms of a revolution, I I wanted to give uh, uh, an award to the the you know we we were doing best performances earlier, and I wrote down worst performance, uh, Nikolai Ceausescu uh, telling the remaining people that everything's gonna be okay shortly before he was run out of that country on a rail. Next scene, uh, getting on a helicopter, you know. Like. <laughs> yeah. 
Yeah. It's cool. <laughs> so funny. Yeah. Well, yeah, I, of course, I also wrote down Weather Diary number one. I think one of my favorite memories of the show was Andy's brain breaking when we revealed to him that that whole movie was edited in camera because you were just bug-eyed Andy for the entire duration of the conversation. It was, I know, it was fantastic. The other thing I wrote down, uh, Halloween Resurrection and the the cutting between the 35 and the DV footage (laughs) and uh, the kids watching, streaming it. from a nearby house in in the neighborhood very very funny inventive brilliant film <laughs> yeah look i mean i said god damn it when you called on march 1st because i was gonna be like everyone's gonna get the weather diary yeah. number one before me but yeah i mean look folks weather diary number one is one of the greatest fucking things i've ever seen and and solely because of how it's constructed and the editing done yeah in fucking camera so the the hands down winner of yeah. uh, it's not an award show but the hands down <laughs> award for best editing yeah. is going to to weather diary number one but my knowing that everybody else was going to talk about this I brought another one um, which was again a very unusual film that I'd never even heard of never would have sought out on my own I got to say Le Dossier Fifty One yeah, was incredible the way it was constructed. I mean, that film is just basically post production. It's just a work of post production. For those who didn't hear that episode, it's a movie that's sort of a like para- it was for our paranoia week, and it's it's about like a, it's kind of like a, some sort of spy agency that are tracking this guy and trying to build a dossier of of intelligence around his life for for potentially nefarious reasons but the film is one of the most unconventional uh, constructions you'll ever see where it is almost entirely made up of like disembodied voices that you never see, uh, snippets of tape recordings, still photographs, many, many like documents, uh, surveillance footage. Dossier 51 is like rifling through like all of the material that they they assembled for the film it's it's really really impressive to me so yeah i'm gonna give a big shout out to dossier 51 okay next favorite overall production design favorite sets favorite props stuff makeup costumes all of it together mise-en-scene Andy, what about you? Well, um, I, you know, I had one and then I swapped it to bring it up to another category to, to sort of more focus on, on a certain aspect of it, which we'll get to later. So I got to say, for me, production design, um, I go back to Todd Haynes' Far From Heaven, which is a magnificent uh, attempt at sort of basically making a uh you know a 1950s film but in the the late 90s when he made that right late 90s or, yeah. yeah late 90s i mean it it is a, a a just a towering achievement of of production design i mean really that's the whole film is is the design the visual design of 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 that i mean it i'm blanking who is it the fucking oh, why is anymore no, no, no. The 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 filmmaker, the Todd oh. Haynes. No, not him. The, Ed Lockman. Sirk. The yeah, it's a Douglas Sirk movie, <laughs> but like made in the 1990s. The 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 Technicolor look of that film, the costumes, the wardrobe, everything. Beautiful, beautiful. Well, favorite individual set would be the 
the hut in MVP that Andy had described, the like monkey homeless hut that he said like glorified childhood homelessness. The clubhouse. Um, the clubhouse. The clubhouse. Pool, yeah. yeah. Yeah, totally. Like that individual set, so fun and cool that uh, made scene being homeless as a kid seem like a lot of fun. <laughs> uh, otherwise, like overall production design, definitely the deluge that that Polish epic. Uh, some of the costumes and locations in that, and then this kind of like goes into the next one. We had like fits, just like overall costumes, but in terms of design um, and evoking a sense of place, Fat Choice Spirit. Johnny Toe's movie for just like perfectly depicting an idea of what the early 2000s were. Mm. That, that's to me some of my favorite design. Well, uh, Edgar Gielmer is the master, and uh, I think Beyond the Time Barrier is uh, is an amazing <laughs> film for uh, for all of the triangles in it. I mean, uh, yeah, for uh, for and doing it for fifty bucks. <laughs> yeah, yeah, just a, a real dirty. A dirty movie funded by some army guy uh, shot in Texas on some fairgrounds. Uh, they fucking killed it. Um, on the flip side, uh, some of the more lavish, uh, I think, productions we've seen uh, on the Silver Globe, I think, is for its design just unbelievable. I mean, one of the most striking films uh, in terms of how it looks and moves and the costumes and setting uh, have a lot to do with that. Um and just, you know, the great Hollywood films we've watched, Barabbas, and some came running. I mean, you can't top that money on the screen, you know? The carnival in some came running, like, dollying through that fucking place. Crazy. Barabbas in the sulfur mines, mm, you know? Oh like, God, yeah. that epic shit, uh, you know, you can see the money on the, on the screen in those movies, you know? I'm surprised neither of you referenced Death in the Compass. It's on my. It was yeah, on my short list. Yeah. Amazing look. Yeah, the wild. Sets, yeah. The labyrinths really. Yeah. Uh, Big yeah. honorable yeah. mention there Dude. to Alex Cox's yeah. Death totally. in the Compass. Yeah. Well, again, yeah. I think we split. That would have been my choice if well, I got a vote. Well, with Fitz, you know, there's overlap because I'll just yeah. say Death in the Compass is on my Fitz list because oh, uh, Peter go. Boyle okay. walks around in a in a blue suit, <laughs> uh, and you know the the red scarlac, uh, you know, design is cool, uh, and Sandoval, of course, just like rolling around drunk in this weird like office, uh, all that stuff just looks great. The Fitz are great. It's very funny. It's very weird. See, since we're on Fitz. Um, I had to say that I was focusing solely on the costumes for On the Silver Globe. I mean, and yeah. specifically those like creatures. I forget what that one race the is. The Sherm. The Sherm, dude. The, the, or the, the Sherm. The Sherm, yeah. Like, and I remember <laughs> on that episode, Ryan saying, like, this would be the greatest Halloween costume. <laughs> and that has stayed with me in my mind. I've, every now and then I'll sit there and I'll think like, okay, if I was going to do it, what materials would I need? And it, yeah. it's still... You just appear on the shores of Lake Michigan. Like, <laughs> yeah, just know. walking out of the surf. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, the, the costumes in that, and even, you know, from just the very get-go where you have these astronauts who've like crash-landed on this place, the, the astronaut... Um, you know, uniforms that eventually sort of like, sort of m like transformed as over the years into a more almost like native looking garb as they, they lived their lives on these planets. But you could still see like the remnants of 
their initial like space suits that they wore. I mean that, yeah, the production design and, and the costumes specifically there, but and then I was like, also, but but if you mean just like fits in terms of people like looking good and like good vibe, I got to go with uh, Robert Townsend's The Five Heartbeats as this great tapestry of like several decades of of fashion and and the suits and and even at times they're like sort of coordinated costumes that the the Heartbeats wore in their stage shows like those sparkly like like onesies that they wore oh, yeah. for one of their concerts. Amazing stuff. Yeah. Uh, five heartbeats. And again, the, the colors that are so vibrant and vivid in, in that film. Yeah, I was going to say in terms of like f- good vibes, feeling good, you know, f- fits, uh, definitely George Kuchar's undies in weather diary. Oh, number God. one <laughs> knucklehead. That guy wears those tidy whities like no one else. And then uh, otherwise, I was thinking about Richard Widmark as Comanche Todd in The Last Wagon <laughs> yeah. and the way yeah. that he wears those that buckskins. He wears it better than Doris Day in Calamity Jane, I would say. Yes. Widmark looks fantastic in those buckskins. Mm. Yeah. Uh, honorable mention, uh, Miami Blues. We all love a, a Miami pastel movie shot by Tak Fujimoto, and it's like, has ever, anyone looked better than these people just running around in this dumb crime story? Like, even Paul Gleason comes in as, like, the corrupt vice guy in, like, an all-white suit, you know? Mm, I mean, yeah. it's Baldwin's shirts yeah. are so, so great. I do think, overall, the costumes in Future Sport uh, are very funny too. Ernest Dickerson's Future Sport. Uh, good collection of good collection of fits. All right, we are getting near the middle of our program here. <laughs> Jesus, <laughs> you wrote this, not me. Favorite original score overall. The one that plays the most in my mind when I'm walking around the town, romping and stomping. Uh, not the Dion Brothers. I think of the original score of Finding Buck McHenry, the that like electric guitar and the horns. The dun 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 dun. dun, dun. I love that shit. Definitely Finding Buck McHenry, a secret jewel in the filmography of Charles Burnett. I found myself like going on YouTube just to listen to the piano ditty from uh, An Autumn's Tale, Maple Chung, you know, again, a movie that was new to me that you brought and I just loved. I mean, I just think back like, God damn, that's just one of the best movies we watched, you know, Uh, and the score has a lot to do with it. It's very romantic. It's very melancholy uh, and perfectly fits the relationship depicted in it and like, uh, when they're like separating at the end and like running in the street and that piano's playing, like it's amazing. So uh, yeah, Lowell Low, 
shout out to the composer. Great job. Call me cliche, but goddamn, Ry Cooter's work on yeah. Southern Comforts. That's some of the greatest music, movie music specifically, uh, I've ever heard in my whole life. And, and that theme will occasionally just come into my head. That is just one of my favorite pieces of, of music I've ever heard in any movie ever. And also, uh, shout out to the, the like, I guess theme score from Avengement. I think oh, that yeah. goes pretty Banger. fucking hard, yeah. But but yeah, big big Ryan Cooter fan. I know we all doesn't so. get much better than that. Oh, I mean one of the greats. I think too, uh, the Knight Riders soundtrack is actually really stuck with yeah. it as this like really beautiful, like corny, triumphant sounding sort of yeah. uh, just feel good score, you know, that goes so well with uh, with the film. You know, I think about them uh, on the motorcycles on the road at the end when that score hits, it's like amazing. Yeah, when the electric you know? guitar yeah. comes in. Oh, oh yeah. Man. Different than original score. Favorite soundtrack. Favorite non-original use of music. Ryan, what was your favorite soundtrack? Good Burger. <laughs> <laughs> well, technically, Hal recorded the Less Than Jake song for the movie. But yeah, sure. Yeah. Well, I was just like, I was pulling it up, and I was like cycling through all the tunes in that movie, and I don't know any of them by name. And yet... It is a collection of pop songs I really enjoy in a vocal time and a place and a state of mind. So I would say, yeah, good for that. For me, it's got to be platform. I think the way Gia Janka uses music to tell uh, the story over time, right, from 
uh, a more like Chinese communist cultural era to uh, into the Deng Xiaoping 80s, you know, when they're all drunk dancing around like to disco or whatever. Uh, I think the music deployment in that film is such a key thing uh, in its sort of like active memory and as we talked about, uh, nostalgia, you know, like music marking history. Uh, in that film, I think is really impressive. And uh, of course, uh, Stormy Weather. I mean, that's uh, just a jukebox musical of uh, a lot of classics. You know, Fats Waller killing it, dude. The Ain't Misbehaving scene, amazing. Stormy Weather, mate, all that shit. It's just like some of the greats, you know? You love to see it. Flaming my love for you, for you, for you, for you. Um, speaking of music marking a time and a place, I've got to go with 24-hour party people. That factory, that factory catalog is, is I think, indisputably one of the greatest in uh, popular music. But, you know, as a big Joy Division fan, as a big New Order fan, and, um, you know... Uh, being turned on by that movie to some of the, the lesser known for me bands of of the factory label like um, the Daruti Column. I've become a big fan of them yeah. specifically because of that movie and just being like, wow, this you know this actually is pretty good music to chill to. Who's like, the one guy that plays the guitar? Oh God, I forget. Yeah, but he's like that his, guy's amazing. Yeah, yeah. he's his like his, his star. He's always trying to get that no one else likes. Or yeah, whatever. you know, just very. But he's the guitarist from the Ruthie Column. Yeah, and he's he's he also has a solo career. I'm fucking blanking on his name, but yeah, 24-hour party people goes so fucking hard. Had a mighty hard time. But I'm on my way Had a mighty hard time But I'm on my way It's a mighty hard climb But I'm on my way On my way Glory, hallelujah I'm on my way That brings us to the second half of our program here. Now we're going to get into uh, some sillier awards, some fun stuff. They're not uh, awards. Not awards, sorry. Uh, the Celebrations, uh, retrospectives, uh, honorings, um, faves. First up, our favorite baddies. Andy, who was your favorite villain? Well, um... I gotta say, uh, I had I had a few. I will I will try to be very brief, but I had to include I had to include them all. Uh, as far as a solo performance, big fan of George Zunza as Daskal, the tank commander from the Beast of War, the Russian tank commander who is 
uh, a very, very bad, very, very bad man uh, just running roughshod over the Afghani people and then having the gall to pick on uh, Jason Patrick. You know, why would you want to pick on that angel boy? He's just such a pleasant guy. So, um, yeah, I think it's really impressive George Zunza was able to lose like 300 pounds to, to actually like fit inside the tank as well. So I'm going to give a big shout out to him. Uh, but my other two have to be uh, the men in black for getting Dan Aykroyd's uh, uh, television <laughs> show canceled in which he planned to to blow the lid off of our, our already here extraterrestrial friends. Uh, so, so men in black, you are very, very, very naughty. And then uh, I also got to say, Big Oil from the Matei Affair for their assassination of John Maria Volonte uh, in that film. Yeah, Big Oil, the Seven Sisters, as they were known. We hate you on the gauntlet. Andy sort of stole my thunder here, but uh, I was going to attribute the ultimate villain of the podcast to David Serrata, the director of Dan Aykroyd Unplugged on UFOs just for giving <laughs> us that movie at all. <laughs> and then I also liked the cohort of vampire monsters in Vampires in Havana. I, I thought they were fun to be around. Oh, yeah. A special mention to the, the, the Chicago outfit of vampires yeah. from that one, too. Love those guys. Uh, well, obviously, Jeff D from Roadhouse is uh, is number one in a long line of villains, you know. But uh, one that I that I really love is Ward Bond in Gentleman Jim because it it goes you know uh, beyond villain territory, and I think uh, the scene you know after the big fight at the end between Flynn and Bond is uh, just an incredible moment of of classic Hollywood cinema you and know? sportsmanship and sportsmanship. Yeah, you know, it's very easy to hate Ward Bond. In fact, we've hated Ward Bond on this podcast in Wild Boys of the Road when he's like gutted by a bunch of a bunch of teenagers. Um, yeah, uh, but yeah, that that performance is amazing. Um, and I just think I was thinking about this very deeply, you know, and I think uh, one of my favorite movies we watched in this whole run was uh, The Quince Tree Sun. And I thought that, uh, you know, the villain of that movie is is time and light you know all things that we uh we deal with as humans which are truly the the villains of our of our lives yeah. I, thought, I thought in that case you were gonna say the sun was the well, villain essentially for... <laughs> yeah basically yeah. when the sun goes down you know for him it's all over you know and uh that's it does make me think I have one more. The country of South Africa, as featured in our South Africa trilogy yes. of Durkey, Comeback Africa, and Mafi. The that country is like the ultimate villain yeah. of all three yeah. of those We've movies. We've covered their crimes <laughs> several times yeah. on this podcast. Yeah. Yeah. Apartheid mm -hmm. South Africa, you're on notice. <laughs> yeah. For sure. Here's For your sure. award. <laughs> I'm surprised, Ryan, you didn't say the bomb, you know, in Rhapsody in August. You know. Oh, sure, sure. That one's so long ago. Yeah, nah, he loves the bomb now. <laughs> yeah, he's, yeah, he's <laughs> right. He walks around, he's like, you guys read this Oppenheimer book? This is who I want to be, you know? <laughs> Start saying weird shit like that. Yeah, he fucking loves nuclear power. <laughs> Well, in uh, in 196 movies, um, you've seen some major hotties. 
<laughs> across the board. Some hunks, some babes. Uh, who is your favorite hottie in all of these movies? The Dangerous When Wet Award. Should point out that that Ryan was the person who really wanted this uh, category to be included. <laughs> you know, Ryan was very vocal about it. So. I'm just reading the copy. So we should probably start with Ryan on this one. Was I? See, because I don't even, I misunderstood. You insisted. I thought this was like. Oh, he oh, insisted. Did I? <laughs> well. I remember what Andy remembers. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean. Well, I had even interpreted it like the only thing I could come up with was like the steamiest, like funny scene. And I wrote down the toe sucking in Hong Sing Su's Night and Day. Oh, <laughs> oh yeah. yeah. Not actually sexy, but when I think of like the craziest steamy moments on the show, uh, that's one of them. Definitely. <laughs> definitely. Very, very gross, too. Yeah. Um. Yeah. I, well, you know, if I was if I was just being like, you know. Uh, 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 I guess a pubescent boy about this category. Uh, I would have to to go back to a very very bad movie, uh, The Sisterhood, which was from our The Future Is Now <laughs> episode, which basically just features a bevy of very scantily clad post apocalyptic female warriors who all have like mutant powers as well. But but they're running around in some some very very. Um, very revealing sort of like post-apocalyptic garb. Uh, but, you know, I would also say if we're talking about steamy moments, I got to go back to our boy Boomer, Ken Wall in the hot tub in the taking of Beverly Hills in a very odd scene where, where the woman is fully clothed. But, but the man, Boomer, the, the quarterback of the L.A. football team is just luxuriating in a very sudsy bubble bath by himself surrounded by candlelight uh so yeah big big shout out to to hunk ken wall well i think you know uh the the entire cast of waiting to exhale is looking like a snack you know all the way down i mean Obviously, Whitney, Angela, etc. But you got Leon in there, you know? You got uh, everyone in there. Uh, and they're looking good mid-90s, like Arizona flavor, you know? It's, it's fucking awesome, you know? Everyone's looking really good. And I also wanted a reason to, sh to talk about uh, Dan Salit's honeymoon, I think, uh, as uh, a painfully realistic uh, depiction of nudity and, and sexual uh, follies, I think, uh, a very notable experience we all shared together you know uh, and I was really happy to bring that film because uh, I love a bad sex scene if it's done well uh, and that film's full of them you know and you know what since we're on the topic I mean obviously we did a week uh, that was titled dangerous when wet and I brought a film that is currently featured in the Criterion Channel's collection of erotic thrillers uh, and that is the notorious the Color of Night, starring Bruce Willis, which has some very long, protracted sex scenes. But I have it on authority that the Criterion Channel's version that is currently up there... The trim dong. They, they removed, or the version they Puritans. got... ...has Bruce Willis's penis uh, censored. It is not in the film. But here on the gauntlet, we three... <laughs> We saw it. We saw Bruce's Willie. And, uh, yes, we did. 
and other things as well, you know. Bruce, we wish you well in your journey. Uh, we love you. <laughs> uh, and I, I do want to add on Marsha's pick, um, not only is everyone hot in Waiting to Exhale, uh, they've got some great fits and great oh, yeah. locations. So my own personal production design fits award for that movie. Um, okay, next up. They're not awards. Not awards. <laughs> not awards. My faves. Uh, well, I'm going to give an award, actually. I'm giving outside awards. Yeah, this is, this is the, uh, the Sherm Award. Um, okay. The Sherm Award? The Sherm Award. <laughs> Next up, we have the Troubled Production Award. What's your favorite behind-the-scenes tale that you uncovered in the last 99 episodes? I actually really couldn't come up with one, so I just like thought about what movie was probably one of the hardest to make, and I went with Wang Bing's Tang. Uh, that seems like it was fucking really difficult to make, uh, yeah. and there were many, many factors that were disrupting whatever plans might have been set up for that documentary um, with the border disputes. I remember about that film in particular that I read that he lost his subjects and then couldn't right. find them again. Yeah. <laughs> so like, that's right. You know, there's a point where the film kind of just like you're with new people now. And it's because like, he just lost contact with the subjects of his film because it was so tumultuous. So, yeah. Yeah, probably 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 one of the moments where they came under uh, indirect artillery fire through their their uh, their migrant journey. I mean, yeah, that's definitely what I would call a troubled production. Hell yeah. Yes. Yes. Uh, For me, I got to go with. Uh, the 13th warrior and yeah. specifically Fuck you Michael Crichton. Yeah. Uh, giving John McTiernan such a bad time that it forced him into a downward spiral of paranoia and wiretapping that would ultimately lead him uh, to, to wind up in, in the fucking slammer. So 13th warrior, uh, you folks were really bad to our friend, John McTiernan. And uh, I blame you for for uh, turning him into the 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 nervous wreck that he was that forced him to to start wiretapping everybody in Hollywood. Uh, by far the most disturbing thing I've learned on this podcast was that during the production of Martha, Fassbender started dressing like his own father, and then you go like. Martha, right? Think about that yeah. movie. Uh, so that, to me, I just, I'm just, <laughs> think about that, just dressing like his dad, like very bad sign. Red flag. Uh, and a great movie, of course, uh, probably uh, not in spite of, but because of such, uh, <laughs> su- such details, you yeah. know. Such mental health foibles. <laughs> I don't think you brought it up in your stats, but uh, the year 1974 has a special importance to this podcast. Marsh, why don't you explain? Yeah, unfortunately, we found ourselves many, many times trapped in 1974, both films from that year and films also set in that year uh, as well. Uh, and that includes 
uh, My Little Loves, the Eustache film, The Deluge, The Dion Brothers, Martha, Lancelot Duloc, Deadly Weapons, McHugh, Stranger in the Gunfighter, uh, and that's just the films that came out in 1974 because uh, No or The Vainglory of Command partially takes place uh, very pointedly in 1974, uh, and there may be another one that sort of historically overlaps. Well, there was Ici et Ailleurs yes. was shot in 1974 and not released until 76 right. or so. Yeah, I feel like there may be another one, too, that had like a delay. Or Erisema, uh, I think, had, was like, oh, yeah, you yeah. know, mm-hmm. uh, in that territory as well <laughs> in terms of uncertain yeah. release dates. Um, so we found ourselves, yeah, just sort of... Uh, trapped there and uh, we wrote down yeah the 1974 award I'm not, again it's not an award show so uh, I, I don't know if we want to take it any further I mean and you just listed them all so <laughs> you know we could leave it there Ryan do you have a victor of 1974 no <laughs> okay uh, what's what's this next thing well we discovered on the show after 99 episodes that uh, one third of all movies uh, climax with a commando raid, uh, and that's just you know something we noticed, you know, and we, and we often you know bring it up. Uh, how often? It's just that's the solution to, to every movie, yeah. you know. So uh, thought we'd honor our uh, commando raids here. Yeah, I think the one that sticks out for me is the the commando raid on Mondo Burger in Good yeah. Burger. Um, that's an all-timer that features like a lot of great stuff. Them like climbing through the straw of the cup that's on the roof that's also a chimney. Uh, they dress in drag at one point, and it's very successful. The The commando raid uh, works, and it's a great moment of friendship between, between the two of them. Hell yeah. I got to go with... The raid on Disneyland, and you could put Disneyland in quotation marks, uh, from Escape from L.A., John Carpenter's great sequel to Escape from New York. When Snake Plissken and Pam Greer, Steve Buscemi, they all climb onto uh, hang gliders, yeah. right? And they they swoop in to uh, Cuervo Jones's headquarters, which is a facsimile a stand-in for disneyland and it's just a great it's a really great uh, uh sort of fantasy you can picture in in carpenter's sick mind of going man wouldn't i love to just blow the shit out of disneyland so gotta go there with with our boy snake plissken and his assault on disneyland one individual commando raid moment sticks out in my mind, and that's uh, Ryan in the deluge when Kamichek, uh stuffs the cannon, you know, clandestinely climbs, you know, and, uh, you know, makes this cannon backfire on the uh, opposing forces. Uh, just a really, like, one of those moments that they're milking, like, so much in the movie and yeah. you're just eating it up, you know, of course. Like, Kamichek's a fucking hero. Hero, we all know that. Fueled entirely on Polish sausage. <laughs> yeah, dude, honestly, there are points in that movie where guys are just li- eating Polish sausage in one hand and lighting cannons in the other. Oh, yeah. Uh, the way it's it amazing. Should be. Um, 
I wanted to give another shout out to, uh, to Commando Raids, and this one might be bucking up against it a little bit, but I sort of see Hell in the Pacific as a series of Commando Raids yeah. uh, from our <laughs> sure. from our two leads. <laughs> this is, of course, the film in which Lee Marvin and the great Toshiro Mifune uh, play two soldiers on opposite sides during World War II who find themselves stranded on a desert island, and once they discover each other's presence... They begin a a series of sort of escalating uh, aggressive acts against one another. But if I had to highlight one, what I would call commando raid, it's when Lee Marvin sneaks into Toshira Mifune's camp and pisses on his head. <laughs> That's such a great moment in that film. Here's to many more commando raids. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Hell yeah. Okay. Next up, we have our, I don't even, is this just favorite Bond, Bond moments? Yeah. Bond alerts. Bond, bond alerts. Favorite Bond the, yeah. alerts. The, this, is a, this is one that I think resulted from my own preoccupations with, with 007 himself, where I couldn't help but, like in a matrix of thought, find James in just about everything we were watching. And it was funny, it was kind of hard, like, remembering some of the Bond moments. And I think the one that really sticks out for me, and maybe is the very first Bond moment, or at least, like, the first time Marsh called it out as a Bond alert. I didn't check the episode to confirm, but the one I think about the most is when uh, Sheriff J.W. Pepper from Man with the Golden Gun has an appearance in Eight Men Out, which I thought was, like, shocking because he's he's the southern sheriff that shows up in both Man with the Golden Gun and, oh, shoot, what's the other one? He's in two Bond films. Uh, it might be Live and Let Die. No. Isn't it the Yafekato one? Yeah, it's to live and let die because he's in he's in New Orleans. Oh, right, it is. Yes, and then okay. he's and on then, yeah, vacation in in Thailand yeah. in Man with the Golden Gun. Yeah. <laughs> this is what I deal with. <laughs> I've also seen just about every. I haven't seen the, yeah. the last two, but I've seen all the other Bond films. Yeah, just like one of the most unpleasant presences in all of Bond movies. But I do love his appearance in Man with the Golden Gun because the idea is that he's just like this piece of shit racist man from the south yeah. that is like probably on like sexual tourism or something <laughs> in thailand it's like insane but yeah clifton james like a nasty presence yeah. and it was very funny seeing him in eight men out yeah he's in thailand on the gary glitter tour yeah <laughs> yeah i gotta say uh as much as uh you know i'm like the the non-bond guy here uh you know very you know very much of the time uh I've appreciated this sort of like attention to Bond, though, because I also think <laughs> that like Bond was such a big fucking deal that its cultural imprint uh, is literally everywhere. And so once you start like having your Bond antennas up, you're like, oh, yeah, every movie is fucking ripping off Bond. It's true, like, and I and I say this as a non-Bond believer, you know? <laughs> I still see Bond everywhere I look in the cinema. And uh, two Bond moments for me. Number one, uh, in Hunter Will Get You, Belmondo, uh, under the RV in the hammock, spying with his little mirror, oh, you yeah. know, looking all cozy. Yeah. Uh, that's an amazing actual Bond moment. Uh, and then I love in 24-Hour Party People, Steve Coogan does a bit uh, about 
you know, broccoli, the vegetable and broccoli, the producer. Uh, and that's just like primo bond humor, you know, no broccoli, broccoli, the vegetable. Yeah. That was, uh, that was, uh, invented by Cubby Broccoli, the producer of the James Bond films. Little known fact, little known fact. It's true. I gotta say, um, for me, uh, just reflecting on funny Bond moments and Bond alerts we'd had, uh, I think it is pretty, pretty fucking ridiculous that for as much Bond as we have discussed on here, that the first moment, the original, well, you know, the biggest, I would say, original Bond actor appears. Sean Connery. Uh, it was in fucking Highlander 2. And we yeah. really didn't treat it with any fanfare at all, you know? When fucking Bond finally shows up, it's almost like an afterthought to us. Yeah. We were just like, oh, yeah, and Sean Connery, right? Well, he's playing like a Scottish ghost, you yeah. know? Like... I mean, but it's like so fucking stupid and ridiculous. And we just kind of were like, oh, yeah, and Bond's here, you know? <laughs> like, I mean, we, we really kind of let that one sort of slide. But I would like to yeah. take this opportunity to go back to probably my favorite Bond alert which was uh when we watched avengement and i had shared with ryan that you know there's quite a few people campaigning for scott adkins to be the next bond and while i am not naive and i know that for uh, a, a plethora of reasons that will never happen i would just like to take this opportunity to say to the broccolis to whomever <laughs> <laughs> Y'all fucking missed one there. Scott Adkins, to me, would have been and still would be an amazing James Bond. I'm going to come right out here and say it again. It is funny that we had very little fanfare for Sean Connery, but like lost our minds when I picked the Charles Bronson film Assassination, directed by Peter R. Hunt, uh, <laughs> known for directing on Her Majesty's Secret Service. Um, yeah. <laughs> they got more jazzed about that bond alert <laughs> i do remember when i blew your mind when we watched uh the pit and the pendulum and i was talking about how how poe uh you know with his source material you know the pit and the pendulum how like poe, poe big bond fan really kind of invented the whole like bond torture sequence that you'd see in so many subsequent films right i just yeah, remember like the look on your face was very similar, like the wheels turning in your head to when <laughs> I found out about George Kuchar's in-camera editing. You were really right, taken right, aback right, right. by that. I was proud of that. <laughs> Here's to many more Bond alerts. <laughs> many <laughs> more, many more. You know there <laughs> will be, whether you yeah. like it or not. Um, is this surprises, shockers? What, uh, there, there have been lots of surprises on the gauntlet over 99 episodes. What it, oh, I got one for this. What it, What is, is it? yours, Ryan? <laughs> Ryan and mine. Our, ours is probably the same because we went through it together. If I if I if I assume you're going where you're going. Oh no no! I mean that's one way of reading it. You know I I think you I'll let you take the lead on that shocker. But in terms of the moment that like shocked me the most uh, and made me audibly gasp and just made me wonder how I ended up in this territory. It has to be the beach party scene in Night Witches of the Sky, 
when it's again a movie about a bunch of Russian women who were uh, bombers during World War II, and they have a moment of R and R, and they have this beach party, and all of a sudden you hear these like tribal drums, and one of the night witches like comes out from the bushes completely in blackface oh, and yeah. wearing like outrageous attire and they all just like have a laugh that was one of the most horrifying yeah. things i've ever seen in a movie uh and i was just not at no point in that movie is there any suggestion that something like that is even remotely possible and i was just i i'll never forget that yeah that was a, a, that's what I would call a a, a shocker right there. <laughs> yeah, but yeah. not a shocker when you consider Russia's long history of very casual but sure. open racism, sexism, yeah, and, yeah. you know, homophobia. Uh, but yeah, I guess I was burying the lead there. But I gotta say, I've had some shocking moments on this pod, but nothing shocked me more than Catherine Brilla and uh, Anatomy of Hell. And uh, when that was uh, Ryan and I doing our our just the two of us week, and uh, <laughs> specifically, I gotta go to the. Um, the the glass of uh, I I'm only gonna be able to describe it as sort of like menstrual tea that is yeah. uh, imbibed um, on that uh, in that film in that room by that man so oof. yeah Anatomy of Hell was 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 definitely a, a very shocking experience for me. Marsh, what took you by surprise? Uh, this is more of a low-key moment, but I'm still kind of, like, obsessed with it, which is, uh, I, I can't remember the words Andy described it on the episode because it was so long ago, but uh, the riot at the clothing store in A Question of Silence, oh, where... Oh, he called it the murder at Boutique 22. <laughs> Yeah, dude, this shopkeeper is just brutally murdered uh, by this woman out of like pure, just like pent up female repression and anger. And all these people in the store just like no one reacts and this like synth is playing and this guy's just being like beat to death. And then they all join in. But it's like a George Romero, like Night of the Living Dead scene. I mean, yeah. like. I love it. I think back and I just go like, that was a fucking gauntlet ass moment. Yeah. Uh, yeah it was totally. amazing. A, a, a brutal murder at like a fucking Lane Bryant. Dude. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That shit rocked. Yeah. Massacre at the dress barn. There's dude. like a baby there too. <laughs> yeah. 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 <laughs> <laughs> Oof. Oh, maybe you called it the uprising at yeah, Boutique. Yeah. The uprising at Boutique 22. Yeah, that shit fucking ruled. And I want to shout out, I know you guys uh, love love this, uh, the lighter in Unfaithful Wife, the Chabrol movie. Have you ever seen a lighter that big? Amazing. Oh, yeah. No, dude, no. <laughs> Still, probably the greatest visual gag in every, in every movie I've watched on the pod. The I gigantic mean. novelty lighter. I once tweeted, like, where do I get this? And no one, no one helped me Big out. Big ass Zippo, dude. <laughs> Oof. Uh, okay, uh, next up, we've talked about this a little bit already, but <laughs> what are your favorite worst movies of the pod? Maybe movies you wish weren't a part of this list if you would have otherwise curated it, but what are uh, the Gauntlet's Razzies for the first 99 episodes? Well, I 
and I mean this purely affectionately, but I, I collected a few titles and I've called this Andy's rubbish bin. And uh, the, t- <laughs> the, 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 the shittiest of the shitty movies we saw, White Squall, Shadas, Quicksilver, Stalin, and Rambo Last Blood, just like a big pile of shit. Yeah. This is like, these are like my, my, like the, the, like the little cage of DVDs you'll see at like a Walgreens, you know, where they're just piled in there. (laughs) Yeah. They're not, they're not, they're not like arranged in any way. They're just all thrown in there together. (laughs) And there's like five copies of all of them. Totally. Gas station double feature. They're all $4.99. Yeah. You know, and I share a lot of those. I mean, I think we all can agree. White Squall is, is is just a, a big old big old stinker there. I mean, I'll I'll you know just to throw a shot back. I'm gonna say Ryan, uh, Death Row Game Show offended my sensibilities in a lot of <laughs> in a lot of ways. And, yeah. and don't get me wrong, I I had fun with it, but who boy, that was a that was a rough <laughs> one for sure. Death Row Game Show, very offensive movie. Yeah, that's a movie full of darkness. Absolutely. All right, these two are roasting each other's picks. What do you got? Well, I'm going to take a different direction. I just wrote uh, French Men, You're On Notice. Oh, yeah. You know, I mean, as you talked about, Ryan, we watched a lot of French movies uh, in the, the more re- the more recent months. Uh, but we, yeah, we've seen a lot of unsavory French men. And I just want to say to them, uh, relax, you know, keep your hands. Go home to your wife. Yeah, you <laughs> Yeah, go, first of all, go home to your wife, you know? Yeah. Uh, and then I also want to, I want to raz uh, a movie Andy and I did, uh, AK-47. Oh, yeah. uh, just two hours of uh, hero worship about a man that invented a machine gun, and there's just no conflict in the movie. And I'm not even a guy that cares if there's conflict in the movie, but there's such little going on uh in retrospect yeah i mean when we talked about it we expressed our our open contempt for it uh unlike three seconds which is fun uh ak-47 was a was a real just like what the fuck you know (laughs) just just money laundering for vladimir putin and gazprom that's all it was dude yeah fuck that well but see this is kind of then you know this is this is bleeding into yeah, what I consider go, yeah, go for it. our real on-notice category. And uh, Alex, I don't know if you had an introduction planned here, Take but you know, we were asked to reflect upon a beloved figure here on the podcast, our, our boy Durkey, who is uh, just a big old putz, a big old dork, a big old just uh, <laughs> sissy nanny in many respects, totally clueless and hopeless. And, uh, you know, we love Durkee, but uh, we were asked to, to reflect on, you know, who invokes the spirit of Durkee? Is, it's become part of our lexicon to, to call out people for total Durkee moves and Durkee-like behavior. Are you coming to fetch us? Over. Yes, we're looking for you, but the helicopters can't find you. Tell the helicopters to tune in their direction, find us on this voice. They reported back, they can't even find the rest. Helicopters, flight 33. Where are you? Your dear. Over. I don't know. Over. Durkee, listen. The helicopters are trying to find you by radio, but they must hear your voice, right? Start talking. Uh, I don't know what to say now. Uh, ever? So for me, um, I, and I, I think we're probably going to share some of these, but in terms of just absolute putzes, 
I got to include, I forget his name. One of you will probably remember it, but the, the quote, rich kid from train, uh, train in the snow who, uh, you know, revolts against the, the, uh, the, the co-op and uh, goes into the the train car on his own with a small group and and eats all the chocolate and sausage. Pero. What's his name? Pero. Pero, yeah, Pero, big fucking derky who had a, a moment of comeuppance, learned his lesson, but he was absolutely useless in in the the Harmony Cooperative. Um, I gotta say too, the the very strange, very bizarre kid from the last wagon who was totally infatuated. Uh, with uh, Comanche Todd, who who was thrown out, as I said on the pod, at, uh, when we watched a lot of red flags, talking about death, talking about murder, uh, and and he was to me totally useless. I think we've already put Ridley Scott on notice, but I had him in my list of jerkies <laughs> for making the white squall. And as you know, Marsh pointed out, AK-47 was garbage, but I'm putting Vladimir Putin on my list (laughs) of derkies for completely ruining the legacy of Russian cinema with uh, the state of of big contemporary Russian movies. I mean, Vladimir Putin, you're a derky as far as I'm concerned. (laughs) And then I'm going to say Kevin Bacon and Quicksilver. Oh, yeah. Big derky. The the finance bro who has to, you know, find himself by taking a very, like, demeaning job, but but still having his safety net behind him of, of, you know, middle-class upbringing, whatever. Kevin Bacon, you're a derky, too. No question about it. Maybe this is the end of the podcast because Andy's going to be poisoned next week <laughs> by Putin's agents. Yeah. All right, Ryan, who are you calling out? Well, it's funny. I knew Andy was going to have uh, a great list, so I didn't think too much about this one because to me, the biggest Dirk of them all is Dirky. But I did think it was funny that Marsh, like his descriptor for this category was biggest wiener. So I wrote down Rocco Sifredi from Anatomy of Hell because that was definitely one of the biggest wieners we had on the show oh yeah 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 that was a very big wiener rock hard uh i want to single out sung nam from hong sang su's night and day who goes ham on the north korean guy at a very chill party for absolutely no reason Mm -hmm. that is dirty shit it was uncool it was unchill so what this guy's from north korea relax man like cringe yeah that was brutal and uh the biggest Durkey to me, besides Durkey, is uh, William Devane as the Wild West academic <laughs> cosplayer in Michael Schultz's Time Stalkers. Just a That's total good. wannabe Indiana Jones, Marty McFly, old man fucking bullshit, yeah. you know. White suburban ass male <laughs> fantasy bullshit, dude. yeah. Milk toast, son of a bitch. Well, the next one we have is the big buck hunter, and I feel like I answered that. I think, for me, I think the biggest buck had to have been the apple, uh, but then I also called out Brannigan. I guess the other one I had shot us in a funny way, because that movie ended up being like primarily set in Miami. Yeah, you're um, one to talk. And I, and <laughs> <laughs> yeah, <laughs> no, it's true, it's true. Um, 
And I also just like uh, amusingly was thinking about Seven Man Army when Marsh explicitly said no guns and then Andy brought a movie like entirely full of guns. I thought that was very funny. We're not going to relitigate it, but they use the bayonet more than the gun. No, I know. know. I know. They do. They do. It was just like explicit instruction, just denied. I mean, it was a conscious buck. It was a conscious buck. Yeah, it was. It was. All right, Andy, who does your big buck? Oh, he fucking knows. He's been talking about it all night. Dad. Apple, dude. I mean, you know, the apple. I mean, come on. I was was expecting like house party, you know. I was expecting Animal House, you know. And I get this movie about these kids, and and the, the dad gets locked up, and we're just hanging around with like child protective services, and you know, like a bummer, dude. You know, big buck. It, it was a bummer. It was a bummer. Uh, Marsh? Yeah, I mean, all the ones you guys mentioned. Um, and uh, one that I think was actually ended up uh, being very fruitful, uh, Train in the Snow. You know, I wanted yeah. to see fucking good train movies. Ryan brings this children, this Czech children's film. Uh, where, Yugoslavian. Where, yeah, yeah, Yugoslavian, <laughs> sorry. Uh, where they get uh, uh, the train, you know, stuck. Uh, in the snow. Uh, not a lot of good train action in that film, but uh, a nice film, and we had a really good time with it. And uh, in contrast to Unstoppable, the unstoppable moving object of uh, Tony Scott, it was a, a pretty funny uh, pairing. So yeah. all's well that ends well. Yeah, I mean, we know. should say Buck isn't necessarily negative, you know? So, the, so as you've pointed out. Marcy. I have no regrets about, about bringing a sound film to the silent film episode. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Когда вы песни на земле поете, Тихонечко вам небо подпоет. Погибшие за Родину в полете Мы вечно продолжаем наш полет Мы вовсе на тени безмолвные Мы ветер и крик журавлей Погибшие в небе за Родину Становится небом над ней Мы дышим, согревая птичьи гнезда Баюкаем детей в полночный час Вам кажется, что с неба смотрят звезды А это мы с небес глядим на вас Тени безмолвные, мы ветер и крик журавлей, погибшие в небе за родину, становятся небом на дне. Well, folks, in the nearly two years you three have been running this show. We've lost some people yeah. whose movies have uh, have been discussed. So, Marsh, take us through 
this evening's In Memoriam. Yes, this is uh, all of the people uh, who passed uh, during the Gauntlet Run. Uh, some of them, you know, before we did episodes on them. Some of them after uh, we did episodes on them. And there's been a little talk of a, of a Gauntlet curse, you know, but... Uh, I don't believe in that kind of stuff. Um, I do. <laughs> yeah, we killed a few people. <laughs> I've stopped picking movies of people I really love <laughs> that are what I would consider at risk. <laughs> no more Clint movies. <laughs> yeah, yeah, for sure. Yep, so uh, in in memoriam, yeah, we just want to say, uh, you know, big up in the, you know, a- actors and technicians, heaven in the sky. Uh, R.I.P. to Fred Ward, Angela Lansbury, Jean-Luc Godard, Bob Rafelson, Alain Tenner, Peter Bogdanovich, Michelle DeVille, Peter Brook, Henry Silva, Jean-Louis Trintignant, Ned Beatty, Vangelis, Clue Gulliger, David Brenner, the editor of Independence Day, Alex Law, the screenwriter of An Autumn's Tale. Just Jackin, the director of the first Emmanuel film, which we didn't watch, but we did watch an Emmanuel film. So uh, there you go. Who's, what is the name of the first director of Emmanuel? Just Jackin. Just Jackin. Just Jackin. Just Jackin. Yeah. That's what I thought you said. Yeah. We went, we've been wow. over this. That's what he said. Were we? Just, yeah, they're like famous. Just, they just jacking. <laughs> Rest in gauntlet glory. <clears throat> okay. Now, next up, uh, we've got uh, a special, not an awards show, a special pick. Um, Andy, do you want to describe your deteriorated? De- why don't you just take it? <laughs> oh, boy. Oh, boy. Yeah, well, you know. <laughs> Savvy Gaunt listeners, uh, you know, fortunately or unfortunately, probably by now are very well aware of my enthusiasm for the the thoughts, the the words, the work of the great madman philosopher Gilles Deleuze, and he's come up quite a bit. It probably at times makes me sound like a like a right asshole when I when I drift off into my my musings on. Uh, his 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 thoughts and his ideas on cinema and and life and everything. So, um, you know, we thought it'd be kind of funny to uh, to uh, pu- pull Deleuze even into this our very special 100th episode. And you know, for me, when we were just kicking around ideas, I was like, well, you know, Deleuze he loves deterritorializing things, deconstructing to reconstruct. Savage couplings, beautiful collisions, which is, of course, to me, the essence of what makes this podcast so, so special to me. Um, Putting things together that shouldn't go together. So in the spirit of all of our strange, beautiful, ugly, awful, wonderful double features, I thought... For the 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 honorary Deleuze corner here, we would deterritorialize our various double features and re-territorialize new double features. So I asked the boys to do just that. To pull apart a double feature and put together a new double feature, create new networks and nodes. Rhizome always. So 
I'm going to let the boys go first on this one. I had a couple, and I I tried to come up with like funny names for them. I realized I didn't do it for all of them, and especially the the double feature I'm most excited about, Deterritorialized, uh, that I didn't come up with a clever title for, though, but would be Dan Aykroyd Unplugged on UFOs and on the Silver Globe. To me, that that would be a fucking <laughs> crazy evening at the movies. Oh, wow. Yeah, that's a good one, dude. That's a really um, good one. Another one I was thinking, like, Rage Against the Machine, and that would be Vampires in Havana and Escape from L.A. I don't know. There's something about the way those movies deal with capital and uh, the way they also involve, like, monsters and genre tropes. Kind of fun. I was also thinking of just ladies slaying, and to me that would be Waiting to Exhale and Night Witches in the Sky. I wow. think that that would be an interesting cohort of gals uh, romping and stomping. And then, then the other one I was, I think would be like a lovely double feature would be The Things We Do for Love, and that would be The Cyclist and The Quince Tree Sun. Oh, just like efforts of great uh, fortitude and commitment, all done out of love, determination. Right? Because he's he's riding that, yeah, just riding around that bicycle to like raise money to save his wife, and then, I mean, there's a lot of philosophy behind behind the love that is being expressed in Quince Tree's son trying to capture the beauty of the world and share it with others, and just the joy of creation and living. So yeah, those were some of my double features. Thank you, Marsh. What do you got? Us. Well, the first one I thought of is is really obvious, but I think it's an incredible double feature, which would be uh, art and artists, routine pleasures in the Quince Tree Sun, two films about mm. you know the sort of ins and outs and humdrum activity of creation, uh, and I think pairing them together would be perfect. You know, I think they would obviously resonate, and you know the details and the the personalities of all those people. Uh, involved um similarly to ryan i also uh have the cyclists paired up with unstoppable for like class man machine you know uh oh yeah sort of men in their vehicles of of various uh various kinds um different forms of locomotion yeah and uh i think another fun one would be uh sort of like rethinking national history with no or the vainglory of command and uh, barbarians, the Radu Judah film, both films that uh, investigate the past of, of their respective nations uh, and come to uh, mixed conclusions. <laughs> yeah. Mm. Marat Saad and Entranced Earth would be a funny pairing of like political hysteria. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Hell yeah. Uh, those are great. I I uh, I got one that um, I think they they do go very well together, and it's again probably an obvious pairing when you consider the subjects. But uh, for me, mine would be like uh, focus on uh, Le Mort d'Arthur. Uh, so I would put Lancelot du Lac with George Romero's Night Riders. Two different oh, that's very good. <laughs> ways of looking at the Arthurian legend uh, in, and again, very, very, uh, very different ways. Um, and then my other one is a little bit of a fun one because I, I, I kind of saw it also as like a, a good gauntlet one where somebody would be bucking. And that would be men 
on a mission. And uh, I would put uh, Fear Over the City, Jean-Paul Belmondo's like suicide run to capture this crazy killer with George Kujar's Weather Diary number one, which is also a sort of like man on a very desperate mission uh, all by himself trying to get those storms, to chase those storms down. So, yeah, I thought that would be a, a very cursed but also very fun double feature for us. Hell yeah. Yeah, this is what we do every week, you know? We're just doing it again. <laughs> it wouldn't be an episode of The Gauntlet without Andy getting into Deleuze. Hell yeah, well, that's, that's enough Deleuze for one week, I would say. <laughs> of the night everyone's picks for their favorite overall or their favorite individual picture of the first 99 episodes marsh what were your what was your favorite rewatch and your favorite new to you movie wow uh obviously you can't actually uh, answer that question but uh, i have to so uh i think rewatch wise i was really happy to uh, bring police beat on the pod i've been beating that drum for a very long time uh it remains a, a totally underseen and underappreciated gem of uh, um, the american cinema um just was a really strange and unique film you know and i love it um and it was really a joy to to revisit it and be like oh yeah this fucking rules like love this guy riding around on his bike being sad in seattle you know uh good times <laughs> good times uh as for yeah the new to me films i mean so many fucking bangers dude and we've talked about uh pro i think most of them that i have listed here um so I guess I'll just to just to you know throw back to the origins of the pod. I still think uh, <laughs> Ma Boomi from our second episode, uh, Ryan's yeah. Ryan's Indian Resistance uh, epic, uh, still is just yeah like a film. I feel like I hallucinated. You know, it's just so moving and beautiful, and uh, it it kicked ass. You know, and I and I always think like. That was one of those moments, too, where it was like, oh, yeah, this podcast is a really good idea because we can just, like, watch whatever. Uh, and, uh, yeah, you know, lesson learned. Great, great, great shit, you know. Favorite rewatch? That was a tough one. 
but I think in terms of the experience of rewatching it and the conversation we had, I really enjoyed revisiting news from home on our Mother's Day episode. That felt like a really special one. You know, we're all just talking about our moms and, and our relationships to our mothers. And it, I felt like it opened a lot of doors uh, in that movie for me. A film I always really loved and then now like cherish even more deeply after like treating it as like a group therapy session. So that was quite nice. In terms of new to me, man, it's so tough. There are like three that like immediately come to mind. If I had to pick one, probably Stemple Pass only because like considering the ripple effects it had on me. I've always loved James Bending's work, but I hadn't seen too much of it. And watching Stemple Pass was one of those eye-opening experiences of this is the guy for me right now at this station in my life. And I like fucking just plowed through his filmography and he is now my comfort food. He is like, if I'm stressed, I sit down at night and I put on a James Bending movie and I just let it happen. So seeing Stemple Pass was, it was nice to kind of be reminded this is what I love <laughs> you know and then also just the total shockers things that like blew my mind nowhere the vainglory of the command which is I know we've talked about just all-timer for all of us and then weather diary number one was one of the most surprising things I saw on the podcast for sure something that just came way out of left field not what I was expecting at all um and just blew my fucking mind <laughs> um Rewatch, I have to say, for me, um, Jean Eustache's My Little Loves. Uh, I was go. I was also so yeah. thrilled to be able to just sort of like bring that to you two who had never seen it before. And uh, I think part of the reason why it was such a great rewatch was, again, because of, like you're saying with the, Chantal Ackerman's News from Home, you know, the the place that sometimes movies can take us back to, you know, our figure, our memories. And uh, for me, I saw that at uh, a small, like, Cinematheque in Scotland on 35 millimeter when I was a, a, a budding graduate student uh, at the University of Edinburgh. And, like, my brain was being broken by those professors there and Martine Bunier, my one of my film professors uh, who's a, a a Claire Denis expert among other things this this weird French woman I will never forget walking out of that theater just being totally blown away by it and and her just whipping around as we're all walking down the street and just saying have you ever seen such naturalism? And like, I was like, no, you know, and I, I told that story on the pod when, when I brought that movie here, but, you know, being able to go back there and then go back to, you know, that decade, uh, that, 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 that previous decade for me was just a really warm experience. And, and that's just a great movie. Um, for, as far as new is concerned, yeah, I mean, goddamn, no, or the Vainglory Command. It's like my new favorite fucking movie. I just, <laughs> I love everything about it. I love what it's about. I love how it's put together. I, I was just so so taken by that movie, and and it's a movie that I I will do whatever I can 
to get a Blu-ray of. Uh, I would kill for a Blu-ray of that fucking thing, and I would probably watch it once a month. I I know that there are things in there that I have to go back to, that I have to study more, to look at, to understand, to to make new connections with. So, yeah, those would be probably my two. We've been saying all night, this is not an awards show, but uh, this last category, (laughs) I don't know what else to call it. Uh, In our last category of the evening, you've each got your favorite double feature of the first 99 episodes. Marsh, who are you giving your golden gauntlet to? Well, I mean, there there are some obvious classics, you know. Uh, the good to be bad episode, I think, is a is a was a blast, you know. Miami Blues and the penalty, uh, but really, I feel like more of a deeper cut that was one of those episodes where it's just like, man, I can just like say whatever, and these guys will pick movies. Uh, was oil, you know? I just was like oil like what the fuck's gonna happen you know and that was a very like exciting one and then you guys really brought it with uh rossi's the matei affair which is this very like serious intricately constructed uh you know political investigation uh and gas pump girls which is just yeah this like really (laughs) charming tasteless exploitation movie uh and it was really like yeah the the high low uh gauntlet uh feeling you know i I really just like love that with some of these i was thinking about like what what i define as the best double feature just thinking about like the most fun i had recording an episode the incredible journey and mvp two episode was like an all-time funny one just hearing marsh and andy describe (laughs) scenes from mvp2 is like some of the hardest i've ever laughed that that episode's like a real special one in terms of a double feature where it feels like the films are permanently linked in my mind now i would have to go with entranced earth and escape from la yeah Two films I would never have like considered just like plopping right down next to each other, and now to me feel like they're entirely in conversation with each other and designed as such. That was like a real surprising one. And then in terms of just funny juxtapositions and crazy happenstances, the snow episode we did that was just like Finland all around. 
you know, by accident and also just kind of about the same things. The White Reindeer and The Long Kiss Goodnight. There were just like some outrageous overlaps between those two films and it's just, it felt cosmic that they ended up next to each other. I mean, Alex, uh, you already brought it up and I know for a fact it's, it's, I think from, you know, the early days it was, it was the feedback we also seemed to get from our, like, probably the five people who were listening to us at the time. But um, I got to go with our, our, our summer fun, our summer fun episode, the OG ep, Independence Day and Rhapsody in August. I think, again, you know, in terms of that high-low mixture, that was one that, that I think on the surface was like, what the fuck are we doing here? But again, the conversation we had, the, the, the vibes, it was summertime, we were having a good time, we were hanging out. Um, yeah, to me, that one, not necessarily because I, I, I love those two movies or I think they're the best movies, but I think that was the one where for me, it, it was like, um, yeah, I, I think uh, I think we're doing I think we're doing God's work here on the podcast. You know? <laughs> yeah, I just like vividly remember sitting there and Marsh starting the episode going, Well, I asked the boys to bring me films that evoked a sense of summer, and instead they brought me two films about nuclear holocaust. <laughs> <laughs> and Nailed I was like, it. Yes we did. Yes we did. <laughs> yeah, you certainly did, you know. Richard Gere. I think it's also it was like our, it was it was our first it was our first truly cursed double feature. Oh yeah. You know, and it was a, a sign of things to come. Many more curses for sure. <laughs> and many more to come. Here's to 99 more episodes. <laughs> I'll let you all wrap it up. Uh, I I just want to say big 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 thanks to anyone uh, who has listened, whether you've listened to all, and if you have, like you need to wow. go see a therapist. Uh, you need you need more you need more in your life. Um, but really, honestly, like um, we've gotten feedback from people, whether just you know DMs or or just people on you know Marsh hitting Marsh up on Twitter. Ryan and I aren't really big Twitter guys, so we live vicariously, I think, through through Marsh's. Uh, through the feedback Marsh gets on, on his Twitter, but, but it really does like mean a lot to, to, you know, know that people appreciate what we do, or at least just sort of think we're nuts. And, uh, you know, really, um, thanks to anyone and everyone who has listened, whether to one or to all of our episodes, really. Thank you. Thanks everyone. Thanks everyone. Yeah, totally. Um, it is, uh, we're back on the on the regular schedule uh, for a week, and then uh, Ryan's going in the White City mode, and we'll have uh, guest Sh- Alex Sherman uh, on the pod. Very oh, ex- lovely. Very I'm very excited. excited. Yeah, I've already got a theme picked. He does, but we'll get to that after uh, next week, which is Andy's topic. What are uh, what's our big uh, re- reunion? I don't know. It feels like we haven't done the pod in forever, but it's really just been like a week. Um, well, yeah, what do you got for us? Well, you know, um, if I'm being totally honest, uh, I completely forgot 
that I was up next, uh, even though I was the one who pointed out last week that I was the next person to select a topic. So in a certain respect, though, I'm, I'm really glad that I did, because now going through this experience and just sort of sitting here and thinking, okay, what is next? I think a great topic, a great way to kick off the next 100 would be with a Big Bang Genesis. Give me that. A new beginning of some sort. And you can take that one however you'd like. Let's go. Let's see how we're going to kick off the next 100. As always, you can follow us on Twitter or send us an email at gauntletmoviepodcast at gmail.com. Thanks, everyone. Good night. Get home safe.